Hello, you, and welcome to You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Today, we are talking about Elf, and we're talking about it with the great Sarah Archer. I'm one of your hosts, Alex Steed, and I will soon be joined by my marvelous co-host, Sarah Marshall. This episode comes out a couple days before Hanukkah, and if you celebrate, happy Hanukkah from us to you. Thank you so much for being here. Elf is a 2003 American Christmas comedy film directed by Jon Favreau and written by David Berenbaum. It stars Will Ferrell as Buddy, a human raised by Santa's elves, uh, James Kahn's in this, Zoe Deschanel, Mary Steenburgen, Edward Asner, and Bob Newhart. We talk about all these fine folks and more in this very episode, and we talk about these fine folks and more with the delightful Sarah Archer repeat guest. Last time she was on, we talked about Rosemary's Baby, and we had a blast doing it. Sarah Archer is a design and culture writer based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Her articles and reviews have appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Vox, The Cut, Architectural Digest, NewYorker.com, American Craft Magazine, Curbed, Dwell, Metropolis, Bloomberg City Lab, Slate, The Washington Post, and many more fine and prestigious publications. We love Sarah. Every time Sarah is here, we talk about the text of the movie itself, and then we talk about so much more because uh, Sarah Archer is a font of information, and we have so much fun with her. How are you doing? What's going on in your world? Let us know what you're watching, what you're reading, what you're eating. We're on uh, social media. We're on uh, Twitter. We're on <laughs> Blue Sky. We're on Threads. We are on Instagram. That's a big one for us. Uh, I make reels occasionally. And just let us know how you're doing. Let us know how you're feeling. Let us know how your head and your heart are holding up. And don't forget that you, my friend, you, the one who's listening to my voice in your ears right now, you, my friend, are good. Thank you for being here. We appreciate you. You are good. A feelings podcast about movies is made possible with and by your support. Thanks so much to everyone who supports us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions. You get bonus episodes monthly if you support us over there. We appreciate you. Everyone who's listening appreciates you because without you, there would be no show. Without you, we couldn't make the show. So thank you so much. In exchange, you got those bonus episodes. We have one coming out about the second half of the second season of In Just Like That to close out this year. So you have that to look forward to. We did Debs last month. We'll probably pick up on our Hannibal run early next year. We're having a good time over there. And we, uh, we're glad that we get to have those bonus conversations with everyone who supports us over there in that way. Thank you so much for doing that. If you're looking to get involved in some way for calling for a ceasefire, you can get in touch with the fine folks at Jewish Voice for Peace. Just Google it. You'll find them. They probably have some actions in your area that you'd be interested to know about. I just got back from a wedding had a wonderful time. Uh, Carolyn Kendrick and I went to this fine wedding uh, of friends of ours who are sort of local arts folks and community organizers. And as a result, just everyone was involved in a really nice way. Like everyone cleaned up after while other folks were dancing. It was just, a, it was a lovely time. It was, you know, the energy of a, a room full of love is a delightful thing. I gifted my time, I guess, as a photographer and was able to shoot the wedding start to finish from everyone getting ready right up through the end. And that was a delight. And I uh, this is the very last thing I'm doing before I slip into oblivion <laughs> under the covers because I am toast. 
I always ask you what you're watching and reading and doing all that. And uh, I would love to let you know that I just watched May, December uh, yesterday or the day before. And I loved it. It's a Todd Haynes movie. So that's great news. And I love that it's a Todd Haynes movie that just like aired on Netflix. And so there's a bunch of people just fresh to a Todd Haynes movie who, you know, some people get it for sure. And then some people are like, what did I just watch? And I like that. I think that that's a beautiful thing. But I I loved this movie. I encourage you to check it out. Uh, You know, there are some trigger warnings involved. Maybe just know about what you're going into. But I had a great time with it. I enjoyed it a whole bunch. And I hope we get to talk about it in a more formal capacity at some point soon. All right. I think that's it uh, for this week's intro to You Are Good at Feelings podcast about movies. This being a conversation about Elf, a conversation about Elf with Sarah Archer. So let's get into it, shall we? Hello, Sarah Marshall. Ho, 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 Alex Steed. That was beautiful. That was a great Ed Asner of you. Thanks. <laughs> Listen, Alex, Alex. Yeah. Have you seen any modern Christmas classics that feature both Ed Asner and Bob Newhart? I So this is the first time <laughs> I've watched this movie and appreciated that. That I was like, this is two legends that we get glorious cameos from. I'm now of the age where I can appreciate that. The first men of <laughs> 1970s sitcoms. For people who don't know, for people who weren't Sarah, I think, are you a Gen Xer? Is that fair to say? I am. I'm a late 70s baby. So I am very much team Bob Newhart, big time. Exactly. And for people who do not have the privilege and the joy to have been born at the same moment that baby Cynthia Nixon was appearing on the panel game show her mom worked for. Exactly. Because that's what TV was then. Ed Asner played Lou Grant. On the Mary Tyler Moore show, he was Mary Tyler Moore's irascible boss. And then that was spun off into Lou Grant, which was a very long running sitcom. And Bob Newhart was a comedian who was a star of both the Bob Newhart show. And then later on, Newhart. I was talking to a friend the other night about like my fondness. And I think I've said this on the show before. Both of those shows, all three of the, all of the shows I guess mentioned were very long running and very beloved. There is a statue of Mary Tyler Moore in the Twin Cities. I forget which one, probably Minneapolis. <laughs> Sorry, St. <Saint> Paul. <laughs> I think it's whichever one we stayed in when we, did we stay there? We were in Minneapolis. Yeah. Yeah. So it's there. Cause I saw it while wa- doing a morning walk one day. Nice. So yes. Yeah, so Minneapolis has Mary Tyler Moore, but St. Paul has not Garrison Keeler, somebody else who I can't think of. Please write in on a self-addressed stamp postcard <laughs> um, to say what St. Paul has going for it. But I was talking to a friend the other night about like my love for sitcoms that were on for two seasons, which I think I've talked about here before, because that's the length of time where like you had time to demonstrate your potential and you just didn't have very much. <laughs> and one of those shows is The Single Guy starring Jonathan Silverman, a which is a great example of how easy it was to get a sitcom on. Oh, they were like, right. what's the concept? And you were like, he's a single guy. Incre- that that's re- This is blowing my mind a little bit. You're totally right. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Do you remember that no one else has ever remembered Jonathan Silverman's The Single Guy? <laughs> 
very faintly, but it was that's I mean, try to explain to the, the youth of today like that was TV. And you're like, it was like Caroline in the city for men. And they're like, what's Caroline in the city? <laughs> and you're like, it was about a single girl. <laughs> but I guess the point is that like this is a movie that I also, Alex, this is the first time I've watched it and fully appreciated it. And it feels like so much of what's anchoring it is like acknowledging its 1970s sitcom and 1960s claymation elders in such a loving way. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is the first. I mean, I feel like there are two sets of kinds of appreciation. And one is just like, you know, being a child or a child at heart and appreciating the the Christmas enthusiasm. And the other is just being like, oh, like this is an homage to everything that Jon Favreau grew up with. Exactly. Oh my gosh. So who so who are we uh, spending spending Christmas with, Sarah Marshall? Oh my God, we're spending time with the only Sarah who I will allow to be in my orbit without eating her to <laughs> therefore eliminate the competition. It's Ms. Christmas herself, author of A Mid-Century Kitchen, Sarah Archer. Hello, Hello, Sarah Marshall and Alex Steve. Hello. It is so lovely to see you and also so lovely to see a very well-behaved orange cat. Oh, that's Tony Hawk back there. He's good. Ironically sitting still. Well, Sarah Archer, why this was a, a selection that you brought to us. And I'm curious about what motivated that. I will say up front, I've watched a lot of Christmas movies, some of it growing up, some of it for research. And I will say with love, I don't think that Elf is a masterpiece, but the parts of it that are good are so good that it's like, it's unmissable. Like it's the parts of it that work are brilliant. So it's sort of, you know, there are parts of the ending I don't love. I really stopped paying attention in the past half hour. I mean, I paid attention as much as was professional, but you know. Yeah, that was pretty much my feeling too. I did too. I'm excited to talk about it. I fell asleep and felt fine. (laughs) Which shows you that basically the parts of it that are incredible. People are going to be so mad. People are so mad at us. I mean, I see. I know what I've seen it. I know. But I fell asleep like 25 minutes out and then woke up and uh, to like the last two minutes. I was like, it's fine. It's like Newsies. We're not here for plot, you know? Right. The plot could you could you we have notes, but the experience of the North Pole, mm-hmm. the workshop, the department store, all the essential ingredients of Christmas magic are at play. And you've got Ed Asner, you have Bob Newhart, you have Leon Redbone. Are you kidding me? Wait, who's Leon Redbone in this movie? He's the snowman. Ah! Do you remember? There's like a brief. Yes, I do. <laughs> and there's the narwhal. One of the only like four musical artists I ever heard my dad listen to on purpose was Leon Redbone. No kidding. Yeah. That's amazing. Wow. That's a deep cut. He never comes up. People are not talking about Leon Redbone. Wow. He really doesn't, but he should. Incredible. A blessing. And I really, you know, like watching that opening sequence or not the opening sequence, but the sort of um, 
I've arrived in New York, a young ingenue, going to see dad at the publishing. It's like he's going on a date with Big. It's like there's like Louis yes. Primo's playing. He's Empire State Building. There's Art Deco. Carrie would have Louis Prima playing in her own personal Big Date month. You're right. My God. Wouldn't she? Exactly. It's the, you know, it's old New York. And then I was like, this movie must be why this song ended up being so big on TikTok, because that oh, is huge. like, right? Gotta be. And this is another thing I love about this insane media dystopia we're living in that like Louis Prima is incredibly relevant. Like, how would you explain that to him? It's like, so everybody has a little rectangle. It's the future. He's like, I'm already lost. I don't care. He's like, am I getting a check? (laughs) And you're like, no. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and, and actually to that point, the other thing that I love about Elf is that the way that Will Ferrell plays this character, and I guess the way it's written He never breaks like he's stuff happens to him. He gets attacked by a (laughs) raccoon. He's, you know, people are telling him to make work his new favorite. It's he's experiencing everything terrible, which was not as terrible in 2003, but is, is more terrible now. And he's always full of enthusiasm and joy and wants to make people happy. And it's just the most lovely thing. I think it's I just unironically love that. Yeah. Somebody, please, if you're just like bored and high and want to calligraphy something, like do a tree of like these wonderful fish out of water movies and media generally. Right. Because this movie, this movie is like Crocodile Dundee. Totally. To the power of Third Rock from the Sun. And and there's also like there's Splash in there. Absolutely. There's there's also Tom Hanks big. Yes. Right. Because he's literally big. Yep. Enchanted. This is like mostly big in a lot of ways, I guess. Like as as fish out of water goes, because mm-hmm. like he's like an eight year old boy. Like right? Elf is an eight year old boy. Yes, <laughs> and he's kind of communicating with these like business people about business. And apparently, John Favreau modeled him to some extent on his baby. Yes. Like, and it, it was interesting too watching this because we were getting towards. You know, we'd planned to do this movie and I was like, thank God we're doing this movie because I think people have been asking for it for years. Yeah, it comes up a lot. If you do Christmas content, people are asking for Elf. (laughs) Yes, everybody wants Elf and with good reason. And I was always but I have like I generally here's the thing, you guys. I don't like Will Ferrell very much. Yeah. Okay. In most things, I find him exhausting. Well, I think what he was packaged in a lot movie wise at the same time was tedious. Yes. And there was a lot of it. And how was teenage Sarah, who did not bother to watch this movie, to imagine that the Will Ferrell of old school, which she had ended up watching in a co-ed situation with a bunch of 15 year olds, which was awful. It was awful. Oh, Bobby, it was awful. (laughs) It was horrible. It was the worst day of my life. Like, how was I to know that like the Will Ferrell of this movie to me feels so different from most other Will Ferrell stuff? Not that I'm a connoisseur of the Will Ferrell herbs. So I bet there's like other stuff where he's, you know, closer to the buddy side of the spectrum and I did really love Night at the Roxbury when it came out when I was like 11 (laughs) I love that that's your Will Ferrell exception the one it's so specific an acknowledged classic yes Look, there is like a group of like some kind of demographic of millennial women who fucking love Night at the Roxbury of course but anyway like the the sort of what we were calling at the time frat pack movies right where it's him and Vince Vaughn and their wives are bitches 
you know, and they're married to like Leah Ramini and they're like pissed that she doesn't want them to commit statutory rape or whatever. Like those movies felt so awful to watch, especially as a young teenage girl where you're like, this is what my life is going to be. That's cool. (laughs) And that this movie feels like out of time with all of that because he's playing an absolute pure, innocent character. And as you said, he doesn't break. And it's kind of they have there's this sort of very sweet love story. Right. And they end up like having a giant baby. And it's, I guess, giant in elf world. He's the manic pixie dream boy. He's an elf. Yes. It's so sweet. That's the boys of pixies (laughs) or whatever. So before we go further, Sarah Marshall, can you tell us uh, what elf is about? I would love to. Yeah. So elf is about an elf, Buddy the elf. He crawls into Santa's bag when Santa, played by Ed Asner, is making the rounds and he is adopted by an older elf who had been so focused on toy making, he'd forgot to start a family played by Bob Newhart. And we all get this in a very tone setting monologue by Bob Newhart. And Sarah, like, who is Bob Newhart? Oh, man. <laughs> like, what's his deal? What? How does he make you feel? So he is, the reason casting him is so brilliant is that he's literally, he's the king of deadpan. Like he was certain, I think yeah. he was a stand up guy in like the the late 50s is that right 50s 60s he had tv various tv shows the bob newhart show and then there was just newhart which is the one i grew up on he's the comedian who mr mazel is plagiarizing and i think the first episode of the marvelous mrs mazel because he would always do these routines where he would have a phone on stage with him and he would like play the other side of an increasingly insane phone call. Yes. And he's, he has a cut, what I would consider to be a little bit of like a Tig Notaro, like very, <laughs> yeah, just deadpan kind of like sort of slightly stunned. He was kind of the river butcher of his era, we could say. Yeah, totally. <laughs> exactly. Of his time. That's true. Yeah, that's great. A master of the very slow setup. Exactly. And it's, he has this incredible ability to just stick with that when people around him are just dying like it's just incredible to watch so the idea of seeing him him play an elf who as a persona is going to be you know high-pitched frenetic basically is going to be Will Ferrell right and have that person be like the most understated human imaginable and that he's just such a I mean I think he's still alive right I think you're right yes he's 94 oh and Alex you know that I have I own one of your favorite books, I think, The Celebrity Cookbook, yeah. published in 1978. Tremendous. Amazing. And the the Bob and Jenny Newhart recipe is a carrot ring where you make oh. sort of a, a loaf with a lot of carrot, I think grated carrot in it in like a bunt shape or a ring ring loaf shape, ring pan. And then you, you know, you put it on the plate and then you put a big pile of peas in the middle. Because like, why wouldn't you? And I realize that's very campy, but it's really attractive. You have this bright orange carrot thing and you have your peas in the middle and you're like, wow, this is what it feels like to be Bob Newhart. (laughs) (laughs) This is living like Newhart, what everyone's trying to do. Yeah. (laughs) And so, yeah, I think he is also kind of there's a sense in which all for all his sort of su- superficial chilliness there's a little bit of a, a froideur if you will he's also kind of warm and fuzzy right like he's sort of you know there's this very kind of like avuncular kind of sweet quality to him mm-hmm. well we have these wonderful like using the same technology used very and by that i mean non-technology used very recently to make gandalf look so much bigger than bilbo in the lord of the rings like we have 
Bob Newhart taking care of his giant child, which reminds me of a, you know, a story that my mom would always tell about like having a, a bantam hen that accidentally hatched a clutch of duckling eggs. And so having this hen that was walking around with like her adolescent baby ducklings, like already bigger than her walking around behind her. Oh my God, that's so cute. This movie feels a lot more spiritually connected to Barbie than I would have guessed. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Because the first kind of what, 10, 15 minutes basically is Buddy like getting his quest. He is bad at being an elf. He can only make 85 extra sketches in the time it takes everyone else to make a thousand extra sketches. Poor Buddy. Still a very extra sketch heavy world in 2003, I guess. Fair. Extremely. I was looking at children's letters to Santa on the post office website this morning when I couldn't sleep, you know, and all these kids are asking for PS5s. So can we talk about technology in the Elf Workshop? Yes. Oh, my God, please. I know this is part of your area. This is like my whole thing. I basically just think about it constantly. So something that occurred to me when I was researching Mid-Century Christmas, which has a huge preamble that's not about the Mid-Century because you can't really understand why Space Age Christmas is meaningful and strange without looking at what it was before, which was a very backward-looking, folksy, kind of nostalgic, deliberately nostalgic. Giving children oranges. Yes. So you have the essential conflict of industry and commercialism versus family, and that we're all led to believe this idea that Santa Claus is old-fashioned. And then increasingly, as technology advances, we're, you know, wishing for etch sketches and iPhones and PS5s and this, that, and the other, and that there's this trope of, you know, it's so funny and kind of sweet that Santa Claus and his workshop is somehow crafting all of these high-tech things by hand. And what's interesting about that is that that image of Santa Claus as a kind of medieval craftsman emerges at the height of the Industrial Revolution in the Mm -hmm. middle of the 19th century. There's a famous drawing of him, an illustration called Santa Claus and His Works Mm -hmm. that was published, designed, uh, drawn by Thomas Nast and published in Harper's Magazine in 1866. And one of the illustrations, interestingly, it has Santa Claus with a kind of accountant's ledger, keeping Hmm. track of like who's good and who's bad in a very like capitalist way. And also this sort of pre-industrial carpentry workshop. And I think when I was a little kid, I didn't understand the difference between like medieval and 19th century cosplay yeah, medieval. Yeah. Like it's not, you know what I mean? It's Definitely. just all the same. And so it's, it's easy to assume that things like the custom of a Christmas tree was passed down an unbroken chain from the Middle Ages when, in fact, it was a kind of German folk revival that happened in the 19th century as part of this broad response to all the changes of industrialization, both like the physical world, the landscape, shopping, the kind of people who can make lots of money, Mm -hmm. you know, where people live, how they live, all of those changes, which are huge, and complicate the nativity story, right, where you sort of have a baby who's born in the wrong place at the wrong time. And there are like farm animals and randos. And it's the message is like, this is your king. Mm -hmm. Right. And throughout Christianity, there have been Christian history, lots of debate about, um, should we be sumptuous and luxurious and glorifying God? Or should we be very austere? Because that's the message, you know, that we, you know, we should be. And there's many different responses to that, right? There's the very luxurious, sumptuous, uh, flamboyant response and the very austere Puritan response. And the kind of 19th century rise of capitalism and consumerism and public morality complicates that. Like it kind of twists. Are you familiar with the, the Christmas political axis? No. So it's got 
an XY axis at the top. And it's this is credited to a Tumblr user called Ace of Squiddles. I don't know who Ace of Squiddles <laughs> is, but whoever Ace of Squiddles is, is a fucking genius. It's got pro-Christmas at the top, anti-Christmas at the bottom, anti-capitalism on the left, and pro-capitalism on the right. <laughs> so you've got on the pro-Christmas side, Jesus and Santa. On the anti-Christmas side, the Grinch and Scrooge. On the pro-capitalism side, Santa and Scrooge. And anti-capitalism, Jesus and the Grinch. And like, I, that's kind of it. Like, I don't, you don't really need any more elaborate explanation of like the complexity of what we're all wrestling with around this holiday. Sure. And what I love about how Elf deals with this is that you're in the workshop, you've got all the, the you know, this pre-industrial, pre-modern, elfin, arctic wonderland, and they're making gadgets. They're making plastic post-war gadgets that are retro for 2003, but nevertheless high-tech relative to, let's say, the 15th century. And he's he's not good at it. And once he's in the department store, the, the night that he sort of goes into a, like a, an elfin fugue state and decorates, <laughs> he's doing a, a giant craft project. <laughs> like it's a temple <laughs> of, of consumerism, but he's you know making snowflakes and arranging everything and lights. And it's not really about, you know, making work your favorite. It's really about this just joy and love in, in crafting, which is such a part of Christmas. It's really kind of like my my personal fave that and getting a Garfield telephone as, as a third grader. Um, that was the best Christmas of my life. And honestly, it's like, I don't think anybody could top it. Sarah, do you know about that beach in France where all the Garfield phones were washing up for years and years? <laughs> yes. Alex, do you know about it? <laughs> I think that the, I think you've mentioned this in passing, but I don't know the full story. It seems too good to be true. Well, apparently it is true because there were all these Garfields washing up on this beach and nobody could figure out what was going on. And finally, they found a shipping container in a cave that had been full of Garfield phones. And they were like washing out with the tide or something. And they were washing up kind of weathered as though they were cut. They had sort of emerged from the sands of time. They were like these artifacts. <laughs> Which is really beautiful. It's gorgeous. Like someday someone's going to find, you know, like that that'll be one of the things we leave behind. There's like those bodies at Pompeii, you know, and then we're going to leave behind the Garfield phones. <laughs> right, Garfield telephones. And also at Pompeii, they had a snack bar. I think like not that long ago, they found a snack bar in Pompeii. Oh, I don't think I knew that. That's incredible. Wow. It's beautiful. Yeah, because you know what? People have always liked snacks. That is extremely true. So that's, I mean, basically this, you know, to the point of things that like this idea that Christmas, quote unquote, used to be a certain way. Mm -hmm. And it, it now it's bad. Now it's commercial, but it used to be. But in fact, the Christmas as we know it, in the sense that it's a child focused holiday where there's a lot of shopping and decorating and like mm -hmm. this real focus on sort of being cozy and things being sparkly, the sort of focus on kids and toys and buying stuff and Christmas being a big deal as a kind of municipal holiday have never been separate. They were always mm -hmm. part of the same kind of overall gambit. So before Christmas was a major civic holiday, it was a feast on the calendar, like like a lot of other ones. It was a big one, but not, you know, it wasn't kind of like the entire world shuts down and we all go to Macy's. It was sort of that focus on childhood was always baked into the commercialization. So that the, the, war, the sort of quote unquote war on Christmas narrative is like crazy making for a lot of reasons. But one of the big ones is that it's just historically, it's, it's ahistorical, which I feel like is just rude. Like it's just. You know. <laughs> I have been lately watching a lot of like YouTube commentary videos about Harry Potter 
which I guess I, I, didn't, I didn't even read all the Harry Potter books. I read the first four. And then when the fifth one came out, I was incredibly horny and there was nothing overtly <laughs> about sex in it as far as I could tell. And I deemed it not worthy of my time Fair because enough. I had sex to read about. Uh, that's a great reason. It worked out fine, you know, and like and I was very into the first four when they came out. I was exactly the right age for them. But like one of the things that I've been, you know, that I find interesting and has come up in some of what I've watched recently is how like, you know, Harry Potter like was from the beginning a world without any kind of a coherent system of ethics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everything we've experienced from J.K. Rowling, like. It's not like anyone could have particularly seen it coming i don't think or should have anyway but that like her behavior is coherent with somebody who wrote a story where the reason people do good things and bad things is because some people are good and some people are bad and the mm. bad people have names like malfoy that mean they're bad in latin you know and that there's a sort of i don't know that being a turf and being sort of deterministic about morality feel hand in hand, um, or at least they don't feel like they contradict each other. And then how what you have in Harry Potter, if you don't have sort of, you know, a coherent worldview that really makes you think like you get in Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea books, which I realize is a hard act to follow, <laughs> but that, you know, that that actually presents fantasy as a way of thinking about human morality and behavior in a way that sort of carries over to the way you live your own life. Like I know a lot of people have taken inspiration from Harry Potter at different times, but like so much of it, as you know, I've seen people pointing out is really about shopping, you know, <laughs> and I forget the name of the person who observed this, but I'll try and, you know, get a link to it. But basically that like, it's really weird when you think about it that wizards have to buy their own wands and that, that is and I weird. Think the Chamber of Secrets Ron breaks his wand or Gilderoy Lockhart breaks his wand or something and he doesn't have a functioning wand for the entire fucking book. And you can't just like make one or conjure like that. Isn't that the whole thing? Conjuring things? No, you have to buy it in a store. Well, and that anxiety about shopping and stuff and the naughty list and the good list. And it's, you know, the, the parallels, there's something very, I mean, one of the things that's super interesting about 19th century and, and later Christmas in America is that it kind of glosses over sectarian differences so that mm -hmm. everybody's church is the department store essentially. Yes. And like you go, and you visit a magic man who's wearing red robes and bishop's robes because Santa Claus, in when he was a real person, was a bishop named St. Nicholas, who lived in the 4th century, and is famous because he gave anonymous gifts, including very famously to a poor father who had three daughters and couldn't afford dowries. And he gave them sacks of coins so that the daughters wouldn't have to become sex workers. Hmm. So that's Santa Claus. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. It's very Sound of Freedom. That was Santa Claus. You know, just trying to like keep you on the straight and narrow. But Santa today, he knows that sex work is real work and maybe you want some new shoes. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. Absolutely. Santa's on the side of the worker. You know, and so, <laughs> but so, what's so interesting is like it unites everybody. You know, you go there. According to the song, he knows your status before you go. So if you're bad and you tell him you're good, you're essentially lying almost to God, essentially. Yeah, be good for goodness sake. 
Exactly. And you tell them your heart's desire, you might get it, and then you walk away with a little keepsake. And it's like, that is not the most Catholic sounding thing <laughs> I've ever heard. It's, you know what I mean? Like it kind of, it made civic and sort of consumerist or municipal, this ritual that looks like Christianity a little bit, but isn't exactly. And if you were like me and grew up kind of Christianity adjacent, like a generation removed from people who were actually observant, you may have had the conscious thought at one point, okay, the Santa Claus cosmology is not actually in the Bible, right? Like it's not like this, you learn about them at the same time. Like you learn- Spoiler alert. Exactly. (laughs) And then it's like, this is people who actually do go to Sunday school know this, but it's like, this is a separate but adjacent thing that is, that mirrors, you know, there's a lot of parallels between the two stories, but they're not identical. I think we also need to correct a lot of misunderstanding around angels because I think we've, you know, come to have this sort of at least hallmark and Christmas shoes based belief system that like when you die, you become an angel. And what I like about angels is that according to the Bible, they're, you know, continually on fire and fucking Mm -hmm. terrifying to look at. And none of them are dead people. And have like lots of eyes. Yeah. Covered in eyes. (laughs) This just, it's important to note that this is all a tangent on Santa's workshop in Elf. Yeah. (laughs) And I want to say that, um, and I'm, I, Sarah Archer is here. Like that's we know that Sarah is here because we're getting some fucking history. Mm-hmm. But the uh, the thing that I like the most that is not has nothing to do with the very interesting and important historical tangents that you that not tangents but exploration you went into with regard to like why the workshop is significant in this case making etch sketches as opposed to how it was sort of uh, imagined originally in Santa lore is. If I had this movie when I was a kid, I maybe would have gotten at least one extra year out of believing in Santa because my whole thing was just as I understand Santa, they're making Lincoln logs like that's all I know that Santa is making from all the imagery. Right. It's a workshop where they make wood and children's television. How Mm -hmm. is he prefabbing plastic? Exactly. Yeah. Santa's. (laughs) I never saw a picture of Santa making a Nintendo. And if I had it. It would have been helpful, right. I think, in in my naturally skeptical brain. <laughs> That's so interesting because it would have been sort of like realism, right? It would have been like this is yes, yeah, so he's he can make Nintendo. You who are, who are you talking to? This is the first time I ever saw Santa concerned with electronics and teaching class. They, yeah, and the fun joke is like when we see that when we so see cute. the class that Will Ferrell is in with all the other elves. You see there, and I forget I exactly what it is, but you see some of the signs indicating what the curricula are, and it's about like electrical engineering and stuff. And I love that. And Christmas spirit is like a question of physics, right? right? Like it can kind of bring you, it's like jet propulsion for the, the sleigh. So they do a really nice job in the movie of kind of like weaving that together that if you're a kid, you're, I think you're right. You can almost think like, oh, okay, all right, this, yeah, the, the sleigh. Yeah, it gives at least, a, I think it gives enough ammunition for like, if you didn't grow up with this movie, which I did not, but if you didn't grow up with this movie, I feel like there's a likelihood that you lose one year of believing in Santa because this yeah. gives you enough plausible deniability for you know to your point about the about the christmas cheer you know essentially bob newhart has developed this really 60s looking console which totally. is really beautiful Amazing. it's like it's like it, it reminds of like a synthesizer from the time that is there for backup just in case there isn't right. enough christmas cheer out there and it's i i really like it i like it a lot Yeah, I also I mean, this is a problem that I had. And I love that we can see that they're making Monopoly boards and that it is like, you know, modern stuff, but also that they're not, you know, because I those questions have to be even bigger now because kids 
It used to be that only some kids would want electronics and now kids all basically want and need electronics. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, that definitely was like, I feel like for my generation, Space Age Christmas was sort of over by then. And so this is part of the reason why I became fascinated by it, because it was this brief period where there was like a real focus on the future or an idea of the future when Christmas generally is really about kind of like an imagined past. So it's kind of like a science fiction twist on the Santa cosmology. Hmm. And I definitely like, you know, the old school stuff, the Barbie's dream house, all that stuff. Like I loved, like I, I didn't really need gadgets. I mean, the Garfield telephone is in a class by itself, obviously, but in general, it was, I was sort of like of an era when high technology, like an an old school Game Boy was like, whoa, like that was the, the frontier. Yeah. I will just say, I always like to bring this up. I know everybody knows, but it's like, Do you ever look at humans the way whatever Attenborough does, planet Earth, looks at, you know, whatever creature he's talking about, you know, just like looking at humans and Christmas and being like, these charming creatures, despite so many of them lacking upper body strength, will lurk home trees sawn down in a forest to turn them into fire hazards to keep in the living room and cover in the most expensive things they own. A mystery. And yet beautiful to observe. It's yeah. pretty incredible. It's yeah. Like throughout history, this really hasn't actually changed all that much that we love being cozy and having cozy times. We love baked goods. We love things that are sparkly and shiny and we love prezzies. And like, that's pretty consistent. <laughs> we just want a shiny thing in a prezzy. Like visit any art museum. Like that's, that's what's around. I was at a dinner the other night and I brought up the fact that I had only recently learned about like one year killer whales or orca starting to wear uh, salmon on their head as like a hat. Wait, what? How do they keep them on? I don't know. They were like, look, at, I got a salmon on my head. They would show each other. I think it was like when they were out of the water. For dating? And I don't know what the, I, I, that's as far as I know. Wow. I would do that on a date. But the people who were there were like, oh, that's so funny. And I was like, look at everything we do. Yeah. Oh, I remember where I learned this from is Natalia Regan, who is a really great entertainment science reporter. Ooh. And she's fantastic. And she told me this uh, a, a couple of days ago but this this evidently happened only like within a particular pod for one year in 1987 huh particular orcas in a tribe were wearing hats and they were salmon <laughs> and it came in way so maybe it was like paper dresses or something and like, it's, yeah. like it was just like a thing that came and went and it was like a like blueberry milk nails here totally. and gone like a summer's day <laughs> it's gone like claw bangs it was just wow. over quickly I, but i like it and i think about that anytime i think about literally anything a human does that's not eating or having sex like it's all so silly yeah. we do so many silly things <laughs> anyway um elf is a movie And uh, uh, they make toys. What else happens, sir? They make toys. Buddy's not so good at it. He he looks like he's about 35, which I ascribe to the fact that the elves are on a much longer timeline. Yeah. And he's like what elves see as like a very young man, I think, probably. Yeah. His dad made his first like work achievement at like 450 years old or something. Well, there you go. He brings that up later. Yeah. So he's a little baby by comparison. Yeah. Yeah. And he overhears one day some his fellow worker elves. And this is like, yeah, watching at this time, the scene completely won me over because he's so bad at making toys that they put him in product testing. And so he has to like turn the cranks on all these jack in the boxes. So oh, 
he makes sure they pop up and he's like so genuinely scared each time it happens i love it so much it's like a buster keaton movie or something it 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 really is and it's worth it's worth noting that who he overhears this information from is played by peter billingsley from a christmas story it's perfect you're i didn't catch oh i totally didn't that's that. that's incredible now look at his like imagine his eyes and you can see him for sure but like yeah that's ralphie wow Good catch. <laughs> That's amazing. I saw those piercing blue eyes and I was like, I know those eyes. <laughs> and so he he overhears that he's human. Um, it's also like the jerk. <laughs> he realizes there's a reason he feels so different from his adoptive family. Because the line in the jerk when Steve Martin realizes that his black family adopted him is, you mean I'll stay like this forever? <laughs> And so Buddy realizes that he's a human and he must go down and find his people. And so he walks through some beautiful theatrical stage sets that take him out of the North Pole. He meets a snowman voiced by Leon Redbone. And he has learned from a photograph that feels very freewheeling Bob Dylan coded. Yes, it does. That his real daddy is James fucking Khan. And let me tell you, like all at least somewhat self-destructive people who are attracted to men at all. I fucking love James Caan. I think that's a fair assessment. I mean, he works in the cutthroat ball busting industry of children's publishing. I mean, how rugged is that? Right. It's yeah, it's hot. It's so good. Sarah, one question that I wrote down as questions I wanted to pose when we were having Mm. this conversation is how would you characterize James Caan's performance in this movie? Like, what is he going for? He's giving it 50%. It's the same. (laughs) It's like there's an old Patton Oswalt joke that was on Dr. Katz about how when Nick Nolte is the star of a movie, his character being kind of grizzled and reluctant to do his job can sometimes feel like Nick Nolte not wanting to be in the movie he's in. Fair enough. And how therefore it would have been great to, as they apparently talked about briefly, cast Nick Nolte as Han Solo. <laughs> wow. Luke, where's goddamn hyperdrive? <laughs> Oh my god. God damn Chewbacca. Yes, please. <laughs> well, it's sort of like Will Ferrell is giving it 150% on yeah. like the Christmas spirit and meter. You know what I mean? He's using James Caan's percentage points that yes, James Caan is. is giving to him. Yeah. It's like, so it's cumulatively where it needs to be. Yeah. Right. Because you can't have 100% Con. There are long parts where like James Caan's in the scene and he's just looking like he's like he kind of can't believe the scene that he's in sometimes and he's just like looking at will ferrell be will ferrell and he looks like genuinely perplexed and i love that which in a way works yes it does because then like will ferrell gets to know his half brother who's like yeah my dad's at work all the time he sucks and it's like you know (laughs) that's kind of is in, in whether it's intentional or not i'm guessing maybe it wasn't it actually does work yeah and alex it is a film about that rarest of things franchise dads and their different gens of children <laughs> yes it is yes it it's is it's about the iphone and the iphone s <laughs> love it love it so resonant i i understand it and literally me for me meeting your older sibling who's like i wish i could have grown up with our dad and you're like why <laughs> <laughs> and mary yeah mary steenburgen in this case who plays his wife now mother of the boy whose name i don't know boy too she needs to get out she needs to get out of this. I know. She's too good. Mary Steenburgen 
is an angel sent from heaven in this movie and in every other movie she's in. In this movie, in Back to the Future 3, in <laughs> Step Brothers. <laughs> She's always a shining light. The important thing to know about Mary Steenburgen is that you can give her a role where she's surrounded by maniacs and she makes you feel like a sane human woman would choose to be around these men. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yes, that that is the role she plays in Elf, where basically she's like the older man and young boy she lives with, her family, are weird generally and weird about one another, right? Mm-hmm. And then Buddy comes along and it's sort of like, okay, you're going to put maple syrup on spaghetti? Is that so? I guess, okay. Yeah. That's, you know, and she's sort of helping him get adjusted to the household. I love it when he makes her that horrible maple syrup spaghetti I for breakfast. Know. And she's like, and she's this so is sweet. delicious. Yeah. She's being like a, a lovely mom and like just like welcoming him. And he really needs that because James Conn is phoning it in and hostile. Yeah. Because yeah. James Conn is playing his character in Thief. Like he's. <laughs> Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. He's basically a murderer. Yeah. <laughs> he, I think that this character has killed people. Like, you not are. recently, mm-hmm. but in the 80s. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, some rival children's book publisher. Yeah. So she's, Mary Steenburgen is clearly holding the family together. Buddy, like, tracks down his dad. And after initially being repelled, he's, they're like the security guards at the Empire State Building where the children's publishing offices are naturally are like, go back to Gimbal's. <laughs> And so he does. He goes to Gimbel's, which is a, which is, Sarah, was that a real department store at one time? It sure was. It uh-huh. no longer exists. Macy's still exists. And in its time, Macy's was considered a little bit upmarket from Gimbel's, which is fascinating okay. to me because Gimbel's is sort of, there, there's the whole sort of Gimbel's has it, like in Miracle on 34th Street, Macy's versus, you know, oh, like yeah. you go to the other store. And Gimbel's no longer exists, but, and Macy's has, I think it's fair to say is is not perceived as sort of a, a an elite retailer nowadays. Yeah, and so he goes to Gimbel's. He's he like accidentally gets a job as a department store elf because they just think that he's one of the department store elves and has like a much better uniform than everybody else <laughs> and a great attitude. <laughs> and he meets cute with uh, Jovi, played by Zoe Deschanel. In her post almost famous pre new girl phase, and she's lovely in it. There's such a kind of vintage style to the way that she sings. Yeah. yeah. It conjures up this kind of like the the American songbook, you know, these carols. And it's just it's so great. Yeah. Her whole thing is like twee out of time. Like that's yes. for, for years and years. And that manifests in, in music. Like and- I could I'm sort of from the 30s. Totally. Yeah. And I think that that's like that's, you know, especially sometimes what we're looking for when everything feels so modern all the time too modern terrifyingly modern (laughs) that's christmas baby that's pre-industrial hand tools that's why we do it yes that's exactly right now she's married to a property brother so really interesting things happen oh yeah (laughs) isn't that aren't they like are they they're like clones right or they're like twins not twins twins. i believe they're twins they're organic clones yeah they're they're ethically sourced clones it's the og clones it's it uh, okay anyway elf is a movie yes i'm andy rooney elf is a movie where buddy the elf has to reunite with his father he manages to prove that he really is james Conn's son i will point out that i and so much of the rest of america first really imprinted on james Conn when he was playing sonny corleone the man whose dick was too big too young to die too 
big dick to live beating the shit out of his sister's abusive husband and that's how that's my mental image of him that sounds about right and so buddy moves in um he's trying to bond with his dad there's something really interesting about the colliding fronts of masculinity where buddy has made a list of activities for them to do together and the last thing on it is snuggle it's so good and buddy's always trying to tickle fight people yeah i know it's so sweet and it's like it's i don't know it's really just like you're along for the ride watching this performance and i really enjoy this performance he is like a pure wide-eyed innocent of just us and our ways the same way that uh john lithgow on third rock from the sun is and like these yes. are both great performances to watch and then the ending which all of us kind of got bored during <laughs> is about santa <laughs> and asner coming to new york and something going wrong with the christmas spirit that fuels his his jet engine he, he loses an engine basically right yes mm-hmm. and the reindeer are like flailing it's it's a disaster and zoe deschanel is like i remember what betty said we have to improve the christmas spirit raise the christmas spirit ometer what is it called that's pretty good yeah and they <laughs> then they have to sing it's boy oh no not an emergency that we have to solve by singing oh no gotta sing <laughs> and they do <laughs> and they save christmas the end yeah a movie by theater kids for theater kids yes and that's you know and it's just eddie you mean we have to perform <laughs> but we're not rehearsed me 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 me, me. it's perfect mm-hmm. and then james con i guess is there like a moment where he is he does he do like the jerry orbach thing where he's like when i'm wrong i say i'm wrong i can't remember my recollection is that like they hug or they kind of there's a sort of warm detente, but it's not like come here, you crazy yeah. kid. It's not like snuggles. It's more like is that right? Am I right about that? I think you're no, I think you're right. I don't think that there's a like <laughs> we none of us remember. We don't know because I was asleep. <laughs> no. I wouldn't buy it if he was like, give me a hug, no. old boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause it's really, it's kind of like you look at the like the the Scrooge denouement mm. that it's sort of, you know that like suddenly this like cranky guy is really warm and fuzzy and that always feels a little bit not quite right. Whereas right. like I feel like the Grinch, I'm I'm convinced. Yeah, yeah. It takes years because you got to soften by degree, right? Yeah, that 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 James Con, you know, he's working in publishing at the end of the '90s. Like publishing is really about to be no more. I know it still exists, right. but it's it's a very different industry, right? publishing you know there's all these fabulous like mid to late 20th century cliches about like the dangerous lives of publishers and you would have these like Mm -hmm. three martini lunches and then stagger back to the office and you know see who norman mailer had stabbed recently and now just every large imprint is five interns named caitlin trying to answer all the phones as far as i can (laughs) tell like literally (laughs) yeah yeah that's 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 all it is Everybody knows. Everybody in publishing knows that it's just popsicle sticks and Caitlin's holding the whole thing together. And it's very nerve wracking. Absolutely. Yeah. And I have to say, as somebody who has written and published books in the last six or seven years Mm -hmm. or so, my God, those young women work hard. Like they're I mean, it is unreal. There's no one else. They're holding it all up. I think that in in the big corner office, there's just a raincoat with balls of newspaper in it and sunglasses on top. Literally. And some like Pulitzers <laughs> some, you know, just hanging out and like a, an old coffee, an old Mr. Coffee machine. Yep. <laughs> oh, here's one thing I want to cover. I 
wonder how John Favreau feels about everything. And I think I project more sympathetic feelings onto people like John Favreau than I probably should. But I have to wonder about what it's like to both save and destroy cinema, you know, in one short life. In a like six year span. It's a lot of pressure. And also be Monica's best boyfriend. Right. Because my read of it is that and again, this is like a very complicated thing. I'm kind of joking here because like there are so many industry forces behind this. But basically, you know, John Favreau made Iron Man and made the Iron Mans and kind of got the MCU started. Nobody saw any of that coming. Mm-hmm. And now we have these mega movies. And we've talked about this on this show before where it's hard. You know, we've created a landscape where it's harder to make something on the scale of Elf or where, you know, I think as Dana Schwartz pointed out at some point that like in the same way that only Nixon could go to China, only John Favreau could make Chef. Right. Well, it's sort of like movies like that have become the province of TV. Yeah. Right. Like the, that content, like just making a movie about, yeah, like Mrs. Maisel could have been a movie in another era. Yeah. I think what is fascinating to someone who like grew up on quote 90s indie cinema mm-hmm. is it's so funny that that was the case with John Favreau. Cause like this is cause elf is the midpoint. Yeah. It's mid Favreau between knowing Ooh. John Favreau as like an extra in the movie PCU, seeing him on friends <gasps> in him writing right. swingers. swingers. Oh, right. It's in the thick of it. And swingers was like a monument of the Weinsteinian world yeah. of quote uh, 90s independent cinema. Flipping independent yeah. movies, basically. Flipping, yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. And like that was, that to me was the thing that was impressive before I knew what was coming with the whole Marvel franchise of seeing Iron Man as I was right. like, oh, it's really cool. This is a like indie guy's take on this thing, which makes it kind of interesting. Yeah. And then they were just like, keep cranking the machine. Yeah. <laughs> it's endless. Yeah. I uh, learned from IMDb that Will Ferrell turned down $29 million to make a sequel to this movie in 2014. Wow. Which, you know, let's wow. not pat Will Ferrell too hard on the back because I he's had plenty of opportunities to make all the money in the world. But like, I always like it when people do that. Like, it's it seems very hard these days to stick to the belief that what you have made is enough and that you're not going to dive in to, you know, make it into a franchise and print more money. Part six. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Totally. That's a rare position. Like, and, and, Mm -hmm. you know, I know that like net worth sites aren't worth shit, but like if you Google his net worth, it comes up at like $150 million. So I understand that he had the reserves to be able to turn that down. But I, but still like that doesn't stop many people. Like a lot of people end up just taking the additional 23. You could always use another, I don't know, Learjet or something. That's yeah, I I I agree with that decision because I think it's such a period piece. Yeah, it's just the cast. You know, it's, you can't recreate. You're not getting Ned Asner. I'll only take it if vibe wise it is like and just like that is to Sex in the City. It feels like somebody sustained an injury along the way, and we're yeah. seeing it from their their maybe their coma perspective or whatever's happening. <laughs> just like that. Isn't it you who famously Alex had never seen Sex in the City before and just like that kind of yes. entered the <gasps> famous as everyone knows. <laughs> famously, yeah. Well, the fortunate thing that I think that the thing that made it not like a radical experience is like Sex in the City 
so permeated, like even for like a teenage boy in the 90s. Right. It's a I knew what it was and like who the people were and what their personalities were or whatever. Which doesn't help you within just like that where they're acting completely different. Everyone's extremely different. the, The amount of people that I've met, though, particularly in L.A. that are giant fans of that show is really kind of surprising and heartening. Really? Well, like train wreck wise, Sarah, I think. Oh, well, that's I see when you said fan, I got concerned. But yeah, I mean, I'm obsessed with it, but I wouldn't say I'm a fan. Right. I think, no, I think, you know, that's a great that is the distinction. I think yeah. like a lot of people who are obsessed with and spend a lot of time with it, but are not necessarily fans. Yes. It's all I can think about. Like if I'm at a loss for small talk and someone can talk about it just like that with me, like we're in the clear for the next hour. Like, Thank God. Yeah, you got it good. There's this shoe closet. There's a lot there. Yeah. Well, we know that James Kahn. Dated Miranda. Dated Miranda. And somewhere before that uh, was a Soho troubadour. And he is responsible for Will Ferrell coming into the world as Elf. Who, in your view, Sarah Archer, is the daddy of Elf? Gotta be Bob Newhart. Great. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, it's either Bob Newhart or Ed Asner, but I think Bob Newhart is your narrator, is your your host. You know what I mean? Is, you know, he's, he gets to be a grandpa. He's our Alistair Cookie. He, exactly. With the, the you know, elf and, and bride and the gigantic baby, who I guess is just human size, but seems gigantic. And he's, you know, your ultimate, I'm a firm believer in the idea that like Santa Claus's should or Santa's Claus should reflect the communities they serve. And it should be whatever, quote unquote, old guy, you know, Miranda Hobbs, whoever it is, you know, whoever looks like your community, that that should be. <laughs> and I think that like Bob Newhart has this kind of, he's sort of an ideal grandpa mm-hmm. in a way. And I, I love his, how sardonic he is and how deadpan he is and how you can kind of like make him laugh a little bit and how sweet and how encouraging and he's just lovely. And I think in the spirit of Elf being a kind of unironically sentimental sort of love letter mm-hmm. to that window of time when you're old enough to kind of know what Christmas is, but not so old that you know really what Christmas is. Like you sort of have the, it's a really short window. And I think that's, um, that is a lovely thing. Yeah, that's, oh, I love that. that I, I'm, I'm tempted and by the way, like a conservative talk show hosts everywhere are very upset about your assessment of what Santa should be. And I'm glad for it. <laughs> Fuck them. Um, I know. The- <laughs> I think Santa should be Fran Leibowitz. Oh, my God. I would love that. There's a whole group of people who make money on every year coming up and being upset that sometimes Santa doesn't look like I an know. old white guy. But the um, I, I this is not my I just want to make sure I, we mentioned the Norwal, which is like my favorite appearance. I love the I love him. And that that kind of rem- that reminds me of uh, there is this moment with Bob Newhart. It happens right before the Norwall appearance where Bob Newhart is sending him out and he just says, like, go. And he he's sending sending Buddy out. And he's like, the performance is so subtle, but it's a very emotional yeah. severance. And it's like a really, truly lovely scene from Bob Newhart. You know, I was I was saying recently that like you, this is one of those things that we talk so regularly about in the show with regard to just like seeing movies on TBS for the first time is like another phenomenon <laughs> that I think like young people will never know is 
watching a modern thing in tandem with watching something from the 70s in tandem with watching something from the mm-hmm. 80s just because of how TV was packaged. Totally. And being a kid that grew up watching both New Hearts alongside Saved by the Bell was a pretty <laughs> unique experience. Um, anyway, I love your endorsement of Bob Newhart. It's great. I'm going to say Buddy in this case because just of all the ways that he shows up for his new brother and the ways that his dad doesn't because he is mm-hmm. enthusiastic and hasn't had his soul sucked out of him yet uh, by, by children's book publishing and i love so much the scene like i was distracted a little bit yesterday while i was watching the movie and i but i made sure that i was present for the scene when there's the snowball fight and it's kind of funny because they're the kids like yes these kids are bad news we get to get out of here and their whole thing is that they're throwing snowballs and i love the scene where we see will ferrell taking out all of these kids with snowballs and there's just something so like cute and funny about the way that he's throwing it but it's just it's this really nice fantasy i'm sure for many who you know their dad isn't able to show up on the level that they want them to show up and and some whimsical creature comes into their life and is able to you know enthusiastically be in their corner yeah you know buddy in a lot of ways is like who's spoonful of sugar the nanny mary poppins fran drescher fran fine and fran I was talking about Mary Poppins, but same. (laughs) Fran Drescher slash Julie Andrews. Oh, forget her. But yes. Same thing. The flashy girl from Flushing. Yeah. Basically the person who parachutes in and and like helps you have, you know, heart to heart talks with your dad and all that stuff. Yeah, it's beautiful. I love it. Yeah. I And and it's a lovely fantasy. And I like that. I like that. uh, That kid got it for a minute. Sarah, who's your daddy? Well, I would. okay. so I would like to say that I just think the theme for the nanny is brilliant and doesn't get enough credit for being a great piece of music. True. Um, But my daddy is. I don't know. I feel like this whole movie is like feels very lovable and huggable. And I guess my daddy is John Favreau because I I like that Mm. he made. I mean, like. It seems like it would be easy to make a Christmas movie, right? Everybody has done it. And yet you look at the Christmas movies that have come out really in the past 25 years and how many of them are keepers. Mm -hmm. And I think that like what makes this movie work is that ironically, uh, it's not too sweet. Mm hmm. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You get it. There's a lot of bitterness. Yeah. Yeah. There's his experience of being told to make work his favorite. I mean, it's a very American experience. And like the adult world feels accurately rendered. It's just not what we're focusing on. Everyone's kind of mean. And yeah, exactly. Totally. Well, and like, and, and we didn't, we didn't go too deep into Zoe Deschanel's character, but I, I love the development of her character who is like a person who feels about Christmas the way one, I worked at the mall during Christmas for years, the way that one would feel if they had to work in the Christmas season. Like that's how she feels. There's a lot of like Santa land diaries in that. Yes, yeah. for sure. This is going to put on the elf hat. Here we go. And for sure. Cigarette. Yeah. <laughs> And it's the thing that I always forget about this movie is that there's romance. Like, fuck it. I don't care. I know. But, the, um, you know, kind of. Yeah, kind, absolutely. It's kind subtle. of. It's like you have to see Will Ferrell kiss Zoe Deschanel. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> but the, um, I do. I do like that. You know, when we're introduced to her, she's like she feels the way about Christmas. Any retail worker who works during Christmas does. Yeah. And it's not there's not like a she has the song at the end, but she's not just like, I love Christmas, although Ironically, she becomes part of the elf family. She marries in, and now she better. And now who's she going to socialize with? 
This is a great question. Maybe there's some other bitter. I hope that there are bitter elves that we don't know about. Yes. Or there are other wives. Yes. There are other like human wives. She can start a little indie band with some of the elves and they're all on tiny instruments. The tall wife's club. I was friends with someone who is like a wife of a professional hockey player. And it's like a whole community. It's like a whole community of people because they're all traveling, going different, whatever. And maybe being an elf wife is like being a hockey wife. <laughs> maybe that's a sequel in the making. Maybe that in that there is the seed of a potential uh, Zoe Deschanel vehicle. Yeah. The real elf wives of the North Pole. Call me Johnny. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And then, we, you know, we kill off Buddy in the opening so we don't have to worry about Will Ferrell showing up. And then we get, you know, Zoe Deschanel has to... Has to carry the day. Yeah. yeah I like that idea. Buddy dies on a Peloton. Oh. Anyway, Sarah Archer. Another great textured, dense episode. I'm so excited to share it with the world. How can people find you? Well, I guess we're not doing um, the site formerly known as Twitter anymore, right? That seems to be gone. Well, we. I mean, I'm there, but it sucks. By the time this airs, it'll probably, it'll, it will have gone up in a puff of smoke. So you can funny. find me on Instagram at Sarcherize, also threads. Ooh. I think I'm on blue sky, but honestly, I'm sort of, I think I'm, I think I'm going in all in on threads. I think that's going to be my thing. This is such a weird time for self promo. Everyone's like, where am I? What am I? What? It's a weird time. It really yeah. Is. I have a website at sarah-archer.com. If you feel moved to send fan mail about Christmas related topics, I'm all ears. Beautiful. And I, I love to hear from Christmas peeps, all my Christmas freaks. They'll be in touch. They, I hope so. I certainly hope so. <laughs> and if you see a peep show, don't go in there. They don't want to, what was it? They don't, they're not going to show you a chick. What, exactly. Right. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me and Mary, Mary, you guys. Mary everything. Mary all of it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of You Are Good, a Feelings podcast about movies. Thank you to Sarah Archer for being our guest this week. We love you, Sarah. So glad to have you here. Thanks to Miranda Zickler for producing and editing this episode. Miranda, you're the fucking best. We love you. We love you. You're wonderful. And we are delighted to have you uh, part of this whole thing that we do here. Thanks to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that made this episode sound so sweet. Thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and Apple Podcast subscriptions. We appreciate you. You get those bonus episodes. That's cool. Thanks for reaching out to us on social media and all the places where we are on social media. Oh, <laughs> uh, I don't know what else to say. I'm just glad that we're doing this and I'm glad that you're here and I'm glad that we have the opportunity to do this together. If you are celebrating Hanukkah this week, happy Hanukkah. And that's it. That's all from me. We'll talk with y'all next week when we, I, I think we're covering diner. All right, y'all take care of yourselves, take care of each other. And don't forget that you, my friend, are good. Good.